Empire. Welcome to Inside the Cap. I'm your host, Joel Corey. You can find me on Twitter at Corey Joel. That's C-O-R-R-Y-J-O-E-L. And also read my regular CBSSports.com column, Agents Take on NFL Salary Cap and Contract Matters. Uh, this time we're going to look at the Deshaun Watson case and what's going to come next. The NFL appealed last Monday's uh, six-game suspension that was handed down by disciplinary officer Sue L. Robinson on Wednesday. The NFLPA um, filed a response within the two days required by the CBA on Friday. The appeal, as mandated by the CBA, will be handled by Commissioner Roger Goodell or his designee on an expedited basis. It doesn't necessarily state that there's going to be another hearing. There's no specific timetable for a decision to be made. The review is going to be limited to why discipline should be modified based on the existing evidentiary re- record and according to the personal conduct policy and the CBA written decision is the final disposition of the dispute and binding on all parties now the Roger Goodell is not going to be the one who is hearing the uh, who's going to be overseeing the appeal he is appointed a designee, uh, Peter C. Harvey, who is a f- former New Jersey Attorney General. He's a member of the NFL's Diversity Advisory Committee. He has advised the NFL on implementation of work case, workplace policies, including revising the personal conduct policy. He's previously served as a designee um, for the commissioner in some disciplinary matters. Um, has extensive background on domestic violence issues, um, was one of four members of an expert panel that reviewed the NFL's domestic violence investigation of Ezekiel Elliott, who was suspended in 2017 uh, under the personal conduct policy. Now, the way the process is set up, it goes independent, neutral arbiter, and then Roger Goodell is, or his designee, final decision. That's better than what it used to be, in case anyone's wondering why is it not reversed. This was a subject of collective bargaining. It used to be Goodell was judge, jury, and, exec- and executioner, where he could handle the appeal, <laughs> handle the hearing, and then hear the appeal. So this is better. Would it be more advantageous in FOPA if the process were reversed, yes, where it went Goodell first, then disciplinary officer second, but it's an improvement over it had been in the past, and it was collectively bargained. Now, the NFLPA had said before the decision that they weren't going to appeal and urged the NFL to do the same. Obviously, NFL's not doing that. They feel the uh, penalty was too lenient. Um, the six-game suspension. So they're trying to uh, get increased discipline. And it's one of the things that has come out 
that early in the uh, hearing that it was very clear that Sue L. Robinson, disciplinary officer, was not going to give them a year the indefinite suspension they were seeking. In settlement talks, they were proposing 12-game suspension reportedly and a fine of roughly $10 million, which was rejected by the uh, um, NFLPA. We'll see if they go back and there'll be any settlement. Supposedly, the NFLPA is asking for one of two things, an indefinite suspension um, without a fine, and Watson undergoes counseling in the alternative less than a year of significant fine and mandated counseling. Uh, One thing the NFLPA reportedly doesn't want is Watson playing week week 13 contests against his former team, the Houston Texans, which would be the 12th game of the season for the uh, Cleveland Browns. Now, the NFL's decision to appeal has caused a rift between the NFL and the NFLPA. The relationship had gotten better, but now things are starting to be a little bit frayed. Um, As I said, the NFL thought the punishment was too lenient, and public sentiment is behind increased discipline. One thing we got to keep in mind is that there's much more knowledge of the case than what the scope of the initial hearing was. And then some people have given what I think is a false equivalency argument because of looking at Calvin Ridley being suspended indefinitely where he can reimply, where he can apply for reinstatement after a year for minor gambling last year. And look at Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension under the performance enhancing substance policy. Well, that policy clearly states that it's strict liability, that you're responsible for what goes into your body even if you don't know how it got there, which is what Hopkins claims, and it's an anabolic agent, then it's an automatic six-game suspension, no ifs, ands, or buts. Gambling has been the third rail for the NFL. That's been well settled as the taboo in the NFL, going to integrity of the game. If you go back to the 60s, 1963, um, Alex Karras, was suspended for a year for placing bets. Also in 1963, the 1961 NFL MVP, Paul Horning, was suspended for a year for betting on NFL games. Now, you go back to 2019, Josh Shaw, while I was on IR, did something idiotic to me. I'm going to go to a casino. I'm going to give him my ID and player's card and bet on games. Um, He supposedly misunderstood a 2018 Supreme Court ruling that struck down a federal ban on sports betting. And he got the one-year ban, the indefinite suspension, ended up being about a 16-month, 16 months before it was reinstated. So I don't think you can really look look at those things. So how did Robinson get to her six-game suspension. I think it might be useful for us to uh, recap uh, why 
she settled on six games. Now, there's a suspension. First thing she did was she found Watson guilty of violating the personal conduct policy. She said that he engaged in sexual assault, conduct that posed a genuine danger and safety to the well-being of another person, and conduct that undermined and put at risk the integrity of the uh, NFL on her 16-page ruling. So the NFL um, won her case. Now, as I said, the victory seems hollow. And there's public outcry or public sentiment thinks the discipline was too light, needs to be increased. So the NFL has the public on its side in asking for the indefinite suspension it initially wanted. Now, for example, the National Association of Women called the decision unacceptable, insulting, dangerous, but not surprising. One thing you got to keep in mind that although there are 24 different women who filed lawsuits and 23 have been settled and Watson reportedly booked massage sessions with at least 66 women over a 17-month span, that's not what Robinson was looking at. The NFL's case was only over four women, four of the 24 women. So the evidentiary record is limited to four women, not what everyone knows publicly that's out there. So uh, that's one thing to keep in mind and why the discipline was uh, just six games. Now, a key distinction for Robinson was that she determined that this was a non-violent sexual assault. Although she said Watson's actions were egregious and predatory, she didn't really elaborate as to why Watson's behavior was non-violent. Um, there are a lot of people who think that any sexual assault is violent in nature and think the disagree with her violent, non-violent distinction. Um, because there's a lack of violence, uh, Robinson was doing what you'd expect a judge to do. A judge relies on precedent. She's a former judge. So she's focused on the evidentiary record and looking at precedent. And under the NFL's past record, which is, came back to haunt them in her handing down a six-game suspension... She was operating from a baseline of a three-game suspension, and that's because Jameis Winston was suspended three games in 2018 for violating the personal conduct policy for groping a female Uber driver in a negotiated settlement between the NFL and NFLPA. That was the most severe personal conduct policy penalty for a non-violent sexual assault. She did say that there were aggravating and mitigating factors that she took into account in determining her discipline. Watson's lack of expressed remorse and then not initially reporting the initial lawsuit filed against them as required by the personal conduct policy were advocating aggregating factors, cooperating with the um, NFLPA's investigation, paying restu restitution, which presumably means settling 23 of the lawsuits, being a first-time offender, and his reputation in the community before the incidents were cited as mitigating factors. Now, I don't know how you can say he's a first-time offender when you got four sexual assaults that you are considering. That after one, he's now a, that's 
now makes him a not a first-time offender. So I don't think she's given enough significance to the uh, serial nature of his conduct. Um, there wasn't a single incident like with James Winston. There are multiple incidents here. Now, she also mentioned something in that same paragraph in her 16-page ruling where she talks about advocating and mitigating factors that Goodell didn't put Watson on the commissioner's exemplist last season. Um, Watson was a healthy scratch last season by mutual agreement between the Texans and himself. He stayed on the 50-man roster the whole year, was paid his $10.54 million base salary, was in uniform, didn't practice with the team. Now, she didn't say it, but it seems that she was kind of looking at it from the standpoint that after the trading deadline, when there was no hope for him playing for anybody else, since the Texans didn't want him playing, he didn't want to play, and that Dolphins trade fell through um, with the midseason trading deadline, that this could be construed that Watson was effectively serving de facto suspension, suspension the second half of the season, although he still got paid. Suspensions are unpaid under the uh, under NFL rules. Now, notice standards of fairness and consistency also were crucial to her ruling. The NFL had an argument that consistency isn't possible because Watson's conduct was so unprecedented that his punishment should be un- unprecedented. She didn't find that very persuasive. One of the things she wrote in her decision was by ignoring past decisions because none involved similar conduct. However, the NFL is just equating violent conduct with nonviolent conduct, but has elevated the importance of the latter without any substance, substantial evidence to support its position. While it may be entirely appropriate to more severely discipline players for nonviolent sexual conduct, I do not believe it is appropriate to do so without notice of the extraordinary change this position pretends to the NFL and its players. So, she's like, yeah, you can um, discipline nonviolent sexual assaults more heavily. Probably need to change your policy to do that. Um, which is what happened in the uh, Ray Rice case in 2014. Um, After he was initially suspended for two games, and then they went back and asked for increased discipline once the video came out of his incident, with his domestic violence incident with his wife, the NFLPA ultimately changed the policy to where there's a baseline six-game suspension for a violent for domestic violence or any crime, um, domestic violence, crime, or sexual assault involving violence. Baseline six-game policy absent uh, suspension, absent aggravating circumstances. So I think she found some parallels between this Rice thing, Rice incident, and Watson's situation where the NFL is advocating for harsher penalty than prescribed in the policy without the benefit a fair notice and consistency of of consequence. Now, she also mentioned in a footnote that the NFL seemed seemed to give some credence to NFL's argument ownership and league management have traditionally been held to a higher standard and subject to more significant discipline, which is specifically stated in the personal conduct policy, but they've escaped punishment for their conduct. So, she seems to have bought that argument um, as well. Now, she's also, through her decision and her record, has handed Harvey 
reasons to increase discipline. As I said earlier, she did find him guilty of the personal conduct policy, violating the personal conduct policy. So, and towards the end of her opinion, she said she called Watson's conduct predatory and more egregious than any before reviewed by the NFL. So there's, in the NFL's mind and a lot of people's mind, even if you put aside that there's more information out there that we know about that wasn't considered, that there's still a disconnect between the discipline and his actions. So that that's that's one big thing. So there are things in the record where Peter C. Harvey can point to in his increased discipline, which we we fully expect that he's not just going to leave it as a six-game suspension. That he's not a he's not a neutral party, unlike Robinson, who was independent, neutral, third party. This is the commissioner's person, so you got to expect that there's going to be increased discipline. It's not going to happen, but I don't expect it to happen. But if I'm Watson, knowing all this going into it, <laughs> I might be working harder to try to get a settlement because I don't uh, I don't think it's just going to be. Harvey, oh, let's increase it by two games to make it eight. The NFL wants the indefinite suspension that they initially were seeking. It's probably going to be closer to that. If I could get the 12-game suspension, I might take it just to get this thing over with because that was where the settlement talks were. But those settlement talks were also driven from the standpoint the NFLPA, that the NFL knew they weren't getting their indefinite suspension where he could imply for he could apply for reinstatement after a year. So they were dealing from a position of weakness. They're dealing from a position of strength now, knowing that being fairly certain Harvey's gonna increase the discipline, may give them what they want. So that twelve games might not even be available if the NFLPA is looking to settle, which by all indications they aren't. With a settlement unlikely and Watson's discipline almost certainly to be increased, um, the expectation is the NFL is going to turn to the legal system and most likely form shop for the best uh, place to try to get injunctive relief um, or temporary restraining order. That's probably going to face an uphill battle. Courts are usually deferential to arbitration decisions in a collectively bargained process. So that's something that the uh, NFL PA is going to have to overcome. Um, And there are pretty limited instances in when the court courts will vacate a collectively bargained arbitration award that the award has to be entirely unsupported by the record. It disregards the CBA. It blatantly disregards law. It's violation of uh, public policy. The arbitrator acts outside his or her scope of authority. And there's evident partiality or bias. Well, 
yeah, there is evident partiality bias, but the problem is that you, the NFL collectively, NFL and NFLPA collectively agreed upon the process to work this way. So this case is, from what I understand, a little bit different from what happened with the deflate case, Tom Brady case, and Ezekiel Elliott case. They were challenging the fairness of the underlying arbitration process. You got a new um, process that was agreed upon in 2020, and it clearly states it goes disciplinary officer, which was Sue Robinson, then commissioner. So that's going to be difficult. Now, you got you have to have procedural unfairness, not that you just disagree with the length of the, suspicion, of the uh, suspension um, that's going to be increased. Now, this case also differs from the Brady and the Ezekiel Elliott cases because they were looking to get relief immediately to get on the field challenging their discipline. Whereas in this case, um, Watson agreed to the six-game suspension. To me, waived his right uh, by not appealing. He was okay with it, accepted suspension. So there's not the same urgency that if you're going to go to the court system, you don't. it's not going to be for week one, I don't imagine. It'll be for any discipline, which is more than six games, which we fully expect um, to happen. But still, <laughs> it's going to be an uphill battle. That we've seen in the past that even if you do, if you are successful initially, like in both uh, Brady and Elliott's cases, that they get what they want in district court, ultimately on appeal through federal court, it gets overturned. Now, the best argument that Watson might have is the fair notice and consistency arguments that Robinson was pointing to in her decision that the NFL is changing the uh, discipline for nonviolent sexual assault in midstream, where they're, as she said, trying to elevate it ahead of uh, a violent sexual assault. And as, as, as I said earlier, a lot of people don't agree with the distinction she made and she didn't really she didn't elaborate um, in her opinion on what she meant by that um, why it's nonviolent the distinction between a nonviolent sexual assault and a violent sexual assault she didn't really go into why she she thought that but um, once the uh, discipline is handed out handed down the increased discipline which we're expecting by Harvey, it's, it's clearly not going to be the end of, of this case because the NFL, NFLPA isn't going to go quietly. And this thing is going to drag on for a while. Um, we'll see if they get any type of injunctive relief or they're shut down. I would say that it's going to be difficult for them uh, to get what they want. Now, let's say you have the increased discipline which we're expecting. That may change the equation for uh, the Cleveland Browns. And it also changes the ramifications, I mean, in terms of what they're going to do at quarterback. It also changes the ramifications with um, Watson's contract. So let's say Watson 
is suspended 12 games. For 12 game suspension, there's no tolling of his contract. It runs as is. He's making 57500 for each week of the regular season. Um, suspensions are based off of your base salary. So the $44.965 million signing bonus is not at risk because of the way Watson's contract um, is structured. That they, his agent smartly exempted out the ability to uh, recoup signing bonus based on past incidents that were acknowledged or that were known when they traded for him in March and gave him the fully guaranteed $230 million uh, contract. That's something that probably doesn't sit well with the with Harvey and doesn't sit well with the uh, other owners because it seems like they are clearly trying to avoid a financial penalty for Watson by doing this. It, it is something that the Browns do um, consistently. Contracts, they weren't going to keep his uh, cap hit at $46 million. But if they had kept it at $46 million, then you'd be looking at $255,556 per week that you'd be forfeiting uh, for each week's suspended. So that's a big difference. So you're talking 12-game suspension. That had been close to $31 million. <laughs> but now it's only working off of $1.035 million. And Watson's contract would run as is. It goes through the 2026 season. And it stays that way. Now, if he gets the one-year suspension or indefinite suspension where he can um, apply for reinstatement, then Watson's contract tolls. And by tolling, I mean it gets frozen 22-year would resume in 2023, and everything gets pushed back a year, so he's under contract through 2027. The uh, bonus proration of $8.993 million would remain in track 2022 through 2026. So his 22 cap number, which is currently $10.028 million, the base salary comes off the books. That'd be the cap relief and the bonus proration, as I said, stays intact. Everything else shifts down a year. So you'd have $46 million base salary and $8.993 million of signing bonus proration uh, in each cap year, 2023 to 2026, and then 2027, just $46 million in base salary. So, and if he's going to be gone that long, <laughs> do the Browns start looking around at Jimmy Garoppolo? <laughs> they have the cap room <laughs> to go get Jimmy Garoppolo. They've got a little over $48.3 million cap space, according to the NFLPA. And they've got a ready-made team which can compete for playoffs. they got Jacoby Brissett as a backup, but they're really thinking if the six-game suspension held, if they, went, they could go 4-2, and two, get Watson back, and make a playoff run. Garoppolo's a better quarterback than Brissett, than Jacoby Brissett. So he's not in San Francisco's plans. If I'm Garoppolo, I want to go someplace where I can start. Um, they get him permission to shop for trade. Uh, most teams are thinking, eh, we know they got to cut him. They don't want him. 
They moved on to Trey Lance. They're not going to carry him for $26.95 million cap hit. If they'll cut him at the roster cut down, then if that happens, Seattle will probably have interest. Not gonna, they're not going to trade him within the division most likely because that typically doesn't happen. So it would be Seattle or Browns. And if I'm Garoppolo, I'm looking to put myself in the best position, showcase myself to get a huge payday in 2023. I'd like the Browns more than I'd like Seattle because it's kind of set up like San Francisco. you gotta, you got to – Offensive line that's one of the best. You got a running game. You don't have to try to be the focal point of a team winning. Garoppolo's got an NFC Championship game and Super Bowl with the right pieces around, and the Browns have more pieces than Seattle, which to me is in a rebuilding mode. And the question becomes how much of his remaining $25 million salary would Cleveland take on? They obviously, have to negotiate a new deal, uh, a pay cut something which both sides would, would be comfortable with. But it wouldn't surprise me if it's a indefinite suspension that knowing that going through the legal process, you're fighting an uphill battle, that Cleveland turns their attention to Jimmy Garoppolo, but um, we'll see. Um, but anyway, uh, that's going to be this week's uh, Inside the Cap. Don't forget... Uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's at Corey Joel. That's C-O-R-R-Y-J-O-E-L. And also read uh, my work at CBSSports.com. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next time. Goodbye.